So we've been walking through the series for the past few weeks, and just as a reminder uh, for us and also for me, what the series is about, the heart of what we're trying to get out of the series is really this, is that each one of us need to be reminded that we weren't just created by God to just simply exist. We were created by God with His plans and purposes in mind. We were created by God in a way where we each have our own purpose and calling. And this is uh, something that God has given to each and every one of us. Every one of us has a calling and a purpose in our life. And if you remember, there's two callings that all of us share. The first one is this. The first calling we all share is the general calling, which basically is a call to be restored in our relationship with God are called to be restored to the one who created us so that in God, we find our security. In God, we find our meaning. In God, we find our satisfaction. The second calling is a specific one. For each and every one of us, we were created uniquely. We were created within a certain environment, under a certain family, and with certain resources. And all of those unique experiences that we've had and the makeup of your personality, the makeup of your desires and your wants and all the things that you've been through in life, all of that together, it points to and begins to reveal our specific purpose that God has planned for our life. It takes into consideration our experiences, our gifts, and our personalities. Now, the second part of this series, calling and courage, the reason why courage is there is that there is a reminder, though, that to actually fulfill the calling, both in the general and the specific, courage is required. There are going to be times, just like in all relationships, but more so in our relationship with God, there are going to be times where we question our relationship with God. There are going to be times where we have doubts and we need courage to move forward despite what everyone says and society says and the peer pressures, the family pressures that come against us and our own mind pressures that take us away from that relationship. It takes courage to move forward. It also takes courage to live out your calling. It takes courage to risk trusting God, to risk going in His ways that seem counterintuitive to your own power and your own availability in terms of the resources that you are guaranteed that you know that you have. It takes courage to follow in a way where we trust God more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust whatever is concrete around us. See, as we pursue the discovery of and clarification of these two callings, we do need to heed. Remember Stephen Covey? I've been uh, mentioning Stephen Covey a lot, right? Remember his quote that I gave? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? In our in-person services, I say, the main thing is, and then the people respond, to keep the main thing, but I guess here it'll be a little bit more difficult. There'll just be silence, but I'll assume that you guys are all repeating it with me in your own spaces. Stephen Covey, what his words have to say, it's, it's really important for Christians to hear as well. Sometimes as we follow God, the reason why it doesn't feel vibrant 
the reason why our faith doesn't feel like it's thriving, the reason why this kind of calling in terms of general and specific doesn't seem to be aligning with us, doesn't seem to be working, there doesn't seem to be power in it, is because we're not keeping the main thing the main thing. And we need to be reminded of this. The main thing in our relationship with God is to keep the main thing, our relationship with God, the main thing. You know, uh, one of the ways that we kind of like deprioritize God, one of the ways that we put him aside, one of the ways that we prioritize other pursuits above him is by the kind of company we decide to keep. It's the kind of relationships that form us, that, that are around us, those voices that are around us all the time that we decide to put ourselves in into. And those voices, that company begins to influence our own values and our own desires. You know, we all know that environment has a profound effect on our values and how we choose to spend our energy, time, and resources. The actual company that we keep, the things that we listen to the most, the things that we involve ourselves and the occupation of our time, they help form our perspective and it begins to frame our worldview. That's why we're reminded in Proverbs 14, 12, the Bible says this, there is a way that appears to be right to a human being, but in the end, it leads to death. You know, the teacher, when he was sharing this proverb, what he was basically saying is that there are times that when we're in a certain company, when we're in a certain value set, when we're in a certain space, there are certain times where that spaces and those kind of things, it makes us really believe that this is right and this is the right way for us to go. But as the teacher reminds us, but in the end, it leads to death. In other words, in the end, it leads us away from Jesus Christ. It leads us away from our source of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It leads us away from the only person that can give us life. We've all noticed this tendency in our lives, haven't we? We've seen it happen in different companies that we keep with our own company. When we keep our own company, where we lock in into our own thoughts, Right? And we're in our own kind of spiraling space. That sometimes our thoughts and, our, and we feel like our own thoughts and our own actions are justified. We see this in the Bible. Remember with the guy that's building his own tower and he keeps saying, having a conversation with himself. Says, what should I do? I have so much grain. What should I do? And then he responds to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll just build bigger barns and bigger stuff. And God speaks to him that night and saying, you fool, don't you know? that your life will be taken from you this very night. You see, we're reminded that locking into our own thoughts, and if we're keeping main company with our own thoughts and our own minds, it's a dangerous place to be at times. Sometimes when we're with a sports team, that company influences our values towards winning, what we're willing to compromise to win. Sometimes when we're with a certain friend group that don't know God, their questions and their cynicisms become our own. Where we're, the company that we're keeping among uh, people who don't know God, and they keep having the cynical or skeptical attitudes, mindsets, and all that kind of stuff, and we hear it, and we absorb it, and, and the more and more we get it, 
it eventually becomes our own. For some of us, even in certain church groups that we're a part of, certain church friends that we hang out with, sometimes their faith can become very platonic. And because they live out a very platonic faith, our faith becomes that way as well. It becomes less engaging. It becomes more of a name than actually a life of worshiping and following Jesus. Our company can influence the formation of our faith. Today, I want to share with you how one man's initial decision to keep in God's company over and above other people's company, over and above his own fears, over and above what everyone else was doing, how that influenced his own formation, and because of that, how he began to be an influencer to other people as well. I'm sure some of you guys heard his name before, but his name is Obed-Edom. And we find his story in 1 Chronicles 13 to 6. Now, there's four chapters there, and I know that it'll, be, it'll take up too much time for me to read all four chapters. The story is there. If you want, you can go back and read the full story to see the whole thing in context. But I'll be taking verses out of those uh, four chapters to give this kind of view of what was going on and what we can learn from Obed-Edom. But before we get into it, let me, let me pray once again, inviting the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and our minds. Father, thank you so much that you are real. Thank you so much that you are God. And thank you so much you can cut through everything to get to us. And I pray that today, may your spirit cut through every wall, every distraction, every distancing thing that we may do, every defense mechanism, every blind spot, Will you cut through all these things so that we can hear from you, we can respond to you, and we can experience you? In Jesus' name, amen. The first point that we see, and the first point that I want to make when we look at the life of Obed-Edom is this, is sometimes welcoming God when you're not sure you can trust Him can be our detractor from keeping in God's company, is learning how to welcome God when we're not even sure that we can trust Him. What do we mean by this? Well, one of the hardest times to accept God's company in our life is when we have certain questions about God and we're not sure if we can trust Him in that circumstance. You know, wouldn't it be so much simpler in our life to welcome God when He is moving powerfully Right where it can be like at a retreat setting where we can just see God doing these great things or, or maybe in the mission field where God's healing, bringing healing and everything and we feel like, wow, I want to be part of that. I want that. And we see God moving in such powerful ways. It's so much simpler to want to accept God and his presence into our life when it looks like he's doing everything that we desire, that we want for ourselves. It's a lot harder to welcome God into our life when things are not going my way, when God is not moving in a way that I want him to move, when God is not responding to situations 
in the way that I expect. When God seems absent in moments where I feel like I need him the most, it's so hard during those moments to welcome God into our hearts and to seek his presence and to keep his company when we feel like, can I trust you? Because the things in my life right now doesn't seem to be going my way. See, there are times in our life where God will show up and knock on our hearts when we least want God to come in, when we least want God to be part of our life. When family life, finances, relationships, church community are all doing poorly. When we begin to question whether God really is trustworthy and worth our own effort, those are the moments where the Holy Spirit may knock on your door and says, this is the time that I want you to keep my company. Check out with me 1 Chronicles verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. Look what it says here. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Now, let me give you a context of what's actually going on. Because I'm sure when you hear this, you're like, what? what does that? I don't understand what's going on. What, what's happening here? Well, what was happening was, you know, many years ago, uh, the Israelites were fighting this nation called the Philistines. And as they were fighting together, the Israelites really wanted to win. And so what they did is they went into Shiloh where, there, where the Ark of God was being kept. And to, in a kind of super, uh, superstitious way, they brought the Ark into battle because they felt like, I don't think we can defeat them. They're so strong and they're a lot more advanced than us. So let's guarantee our win by bringing this supernatural thing in into our battle. And hopefully there, God will just show up and wipe everyone out. Right, so that they do. They're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to use God for his purposes. And they bring the ark in into battle, but they get defeated and defeated badly. And in that defeat, the ark is left there. The Philistines, they grab the ark and they bring it back saying, yeah, we won the victory and we have the thing that really represents the Israelite people. We took their God. That's what they were thinking. And so first, there were three cities in which they put the Ark of God. They put it into this first city, and when they did, you know, their gods are falling down. Everyone's getting a panic attack, and they're actually dying of the panic attack. And then if they're not dying from the panic attack, they're dying from tumors. And so the people of that city was getting scared. They said, we don't want the Ark of God anymore in our city. This started happening as soon as the Ark came in. So the next city accepted the ark and said, we'll take it. And so then they brought it to the next city and the same thing happened. And then the third city, same thing happened. And then by this time, no one in Philistine wanted this ark. And so they put it on a cart. They had cows drive it out. And then as these cows led the ark out of Philistine territory, they self-directed into Israelite territory, into a place um, eventually into a place, um, into a city that was in Israelite territory. And so at this time, that place was called 
uh, Beth Shemesh, and then they finally found this place called Kiriath Jerim, and that's where the Ark of God was uh, put to rest. Now, after David became king, he wanted to bring the Ark back into Jerusalem. He said, "Hey, it's been you know outside in these outskirt places in Israel. We need to bring it back where it belongs, the center." of our nation, right? And so David was riling everyone up and everyone's getting excited and celebrating again. Yes, you know, David is our king and we're celebrating again. We're a great nation again. So everyone was in on this. Everyone's getting excited for God, right? Everyone's getting excited. You know, everyone seems to be blessed. Their nation is doing well. So they make this big pomp and circumstance to go get the ark at uh, Kiriath, uh, Jerim. And then they have this whole procession to bring it back into Jerusalem. But this is what happens. They don't inquire of God. They just makeshift everything. They say, let's bring it back, and they're, and they're celebrating their own desires. And so because they're not doing it the way that God prescribed, they just put the ark on a cart. They're bringing it back, and you know the road's bumpy. They don't have smooth roads like us. And the ark is like you know, jumping around on the cart and it's about to tip over. And so Uzzah, he was a priest. Uzzah's by the cart and he sees the ark about to tip and he reaches out his hand to grab the ark from actually falling off the cart and instantly he dies. The wrath of God just comes out and people are confused. In fact, even David, his own heart begins to fill with fear and is saying, what's going on? What's happening? We were doing all of this for God and God was blessing us. And all this. And why is God's wrath just now breaking out? And they're remembering the time when the ark of God was in these three different cities in Philistine and how the people were dying of panic attack, dying of tumor, saying, oh my goodness, we don't want this. We don't want this in Jerusalem. We don't want this in our cities. And so David, all of a sudden, the whole crowd mentality, no one wants God at this time. No one wants to, How's the, uh, how, how's the ark of God? And even David says he's not coming to Jerusalem today. So what David does is he begins to look around and says, which of the priests or which of the Levite clan here has a house that's closest that we can park the ark, right, for the next few months? And no one's volunteering. And but then they find Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom is a house that is closest to them. And so that's what we see in verse 12. David was afraid that of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. See, it's important that we get here one of the things that the author includes as a detail. He says, not only was this a Levite and the appropriate priest, he said he was a Giddite. That's significant because Giddites, um, it was a, f- a term used of people who were born in the city of Gath. So Gath was the second city in Philistine territory that the ark of God was brought in into where people, where the tumor and panic attacks are killing everyone. So this Levite, Obed-Edom, he knew just how terrible the wrath of God could be. 
And so he's seen it. He's heard stories about it. And so this guy being from that city and hearing all of that, what have happened to his own friends or his own uh, people that he knew, now he's bringing the ark to his home. And you can imagine even Obed-Edom could have had so much fear and just said, no, 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 sorry, not at my house. Let's keep it somewhere else. This is not the right time to bring God into my life right now. I don't feel like it. It's not the right time. I'm not ready. I'm not emotionally or in a good place right now. I can't engage with God. No, thank you. But he doesn't. He willingly accepts. When everyone else in the crowd, when even David, their leader, was saying, no, not today, not in my house, and everyone else doesn't want anything to do with God because he doesn't seem present, and when he does seem present, nothing good seems to be happening in their life. Everyone else rejects, but Obed-Edom, he engages. He invites God's company. He'd rather have God's company fear and all than any other company that he can have. You see, this wasn't the best time in his life to open up his home, open up his heart to engage with God. In this most difficult time, Obed-Edom welcomes the, fir- the full presence of God into his life. And look what happens. And this is the second point that I want to make is blessing and the desire for more. When everyone else was hand, like stone throws away and saying, you know, we don't want this. It's too much for us. Not the right time. Because Obed-Edom responded and he kept God's company, the result is this blessing that comes into his household. The result is even beyond the blessing, a desire for more of God in his life. You know, there aren't many people like Obed-Edom. You can look at our life and you can see that it's very tempting for us to always keep God an arm's length away when we get busy or things in our life seem out of control. Rather than fully surrendering ourselves to the hands of this holy God, We fear the cost when things are crowding around us. We fear what God might tell us. We fear what he might ask us to let go of when we are already hanging by a thread. But those are the moments that God at times comes and says, let me fully in. This is the moment I want to see. Do you trust me? so that I can bless you and I can revive your spirit, your heart. See, our own fears that we have and our own desires, they often limit us from surrendering fully to God. There's usually a certain limit that we're willing to walk up to, but after that limit, we don't let God in anymore. And sadly, at that limit is when God begins to work in His powerful ways where we are convinced beyond a, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really is who he says he is. But because we're always just walking up to that limit and never going beyond that, this is why a lot of us, we struggle in really knowing, is God really who he says he is? Because I don't really feel him in my life. And that's the reason why we always just walk to our limit. I remember as a youth pastor many years ago, there was this one leader of our church that walked up to me and uh, I was working with, their, uh, with her child, 
and this youth was kind of walking away from life, from, uh, uh, from Christ, and just getting into trouble a lot and pursuing other things. Marks were doing poorly. Her relationships were going poorly. She was getting darker and darker in her personality. And then as we began to um, revive our youth ministry and she became you know, one of our leaders in our church and I began to disciple and to invest in her, the things in her life began to change. As she began to invite God into her heart and allow God to direct her relationship, to allow God to direct her studies, allow God to direct her, her family life, we began to see everything becoming blessed in her life. Now, here's the sad part. As the result of this blessing began to grow, this youth, uh, this um, apparent leader came up to me and said, Eddie, thank you so much. We've seen such a great turnaround in our daughter, and we're so thankful for what God has done and for what the church has done. But then she said something that really surprised me. She said, but no more. This is her last year of high school, and we want to make sure that she passes all her entrance exams for university. It's a really important year. God understands, so she can't come to church for a year on Sundays anymore. And I was just floored by that. I said, did you not see God turn your daughter around by your daughter accepting his presence even when she didn't feel like it? But now that things are going well, how could you reject the one person? How can you allow that fear of whether she'll get into university or not prevent you from taking that trust of faith to just say, God's been watching over my daughter for this year. We've seen this thing. And God will continue and help her get into the place that she needs to go as God orders her heart and orders her mind. You know, I felt like saying, you've come this far already. Why quit now? But the thing is, all of us, we do the same thing. All of us, we get to that point where we taste a little bit of God's goodness and we say, oh, I'll take it from here. Why do we quit? Why do we quit at those moments where we feel like we can take over? See, if we continue this way, the resulting formation we develop it into is that we're really good Christians who has a lifestyle where our personalities were nice to other people and we're polite and, to our, um, and we volunteer at certain functions, but we never truly experience the fullness of the power of God in our life. We always just walk up to the edge, but we don't go any further. See, Obed-Edom wasn't that kind of guy. Obed-Edom had every right to be afraid of the risks of housing God's ark at a time where no one else wanted to and right after that dreadful event. This meant that accepting God into his life, he could have lost his health. He could have possibly lost family members and he could have created unwanted tension in his village. While everyone else was stepping away from God, where everyone else was making an excuse of just saying, this is not the right time for God to be in my life, Obed-Edom steps up and humbly Obed-Edom accepts when everyone else was walking away. Now, not only was Obed-Edom's life blessed, but we see something else change in how Obed-Edom's decision 
begins to change and turn around the mindset of other people. I think this is what impressed David so much. Remember David, his own desires? Let's bring the ark back. He doesn't inquire of God. He doesn't ask God, hey, how should we do this? And is there a prescribed way that we should bring you back? Like David's just taking control and he's just wrapped up in his own celebration, wrapped up in his own desire of, I'm gonna do this for you, God, and aren't you gonna be so proud of me for doing this for you? He's so wrapped up in himself that he doesn't inquire of God. But when Obed, when David sees Obed-Edom's response, very humble, and saying, God in my house, in a time where no one else wants him, I'll humbly accept. And he sees that obedience, and he sees the blessing that comes out of it. Do you know what happened next in, in chapter 14? What we see is the Philistines are making their army again and drawing their lines at the border, and David is now having to meet them at the border. And so he brings his army out there to, to make their line as well. But then before he goes into battle, and David's been a commander of armies for his whole life. He's skilled, and he knows how to do it. But rather than just engaging with them, he stops. He stops the whole army. And look at what he says in 1 Chronicles 14.10. So David inquired of God. I'm here, and I drew up the lines, but shall I go up and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? You see that shift of attitude? Rather than putting his own desires and his own thoughts and his own resourcefulness and his, uh, his own giftedness first, he learns from the humility of Obed-Edom and goes, maybe I need to do it God's way. And he asks God, is this what you want me to do? Because if not, despite the fear of not drawing up our lines, despite the fear of us not engaging, despite the fear of the Philistines coming in and taking our territory, if you say no, I won't do it because I trust you. The result, again, God says, yep, go up. I'm with you. I'm going to lead you. They get blessed. They defeat them, and they have victory. See, Obed-Edom's legacy, it doesn't just end there. It seems that even he, in the presence of God, can't get enough of God in his life. When David finally decides to bring the ark of God back because he sees how much Obed-Edom's house is being blessed, he goes, no, everyone needs to experience this blessing. Let's bring it back into Jerusalem. This time when he's coming back, he's trying to look at the prescribed ways that God said, this is how I want you to do it. And as he does, now David needs to find volunteers from the Levite tribes, from other tribes, from the priestly tribe to come and to volunteer in various roles as they bring the ark back. Now, as the ark is leaving their thing, look at the volunteers that David is asking for. He calls leaders of the Levites and tells them to appoint the right people for various tasks concerning the ark. And as soon as as he begins to ask for volunteers from various leaders, appoint various leaders, guess whose name appears over and over again? Obed-Edom. In fact, Obed-Edom just doesn't stay in his house and just say, okay, my job is done. I'm done with, no. He says, I can't get enough of God. I want more of him in my life. And so look at what happens in, verse, uh, 15, uh, in chapter 15, 18. He says, we need gatekeepers for the ark. A gatekeeper. So wherever the ark is going to be stored, a person that's just standing at the gate. Do you know how boring that job must be? We need gatekeepers for the ark. And look at the volunteers that spring up. 
Obed-Edom's name comes up in verse, uh, in chapter 15, 18. It's like Obed saying, oh, 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 me, pick me. I'll do that. As long as I can stand in God's presence, I'll do that. In, fa- in fact, he, David goes on, okay, uh, we also need harpists, right? Harpists to play in front of the ark, right? As we're bringing it in, in chapter 15, verse 21. And look at what Obed-Edom does. Obed-Edom's name pops up again. We never hear that Obed-Edom was gifted as a, as a harpist. We just know that he was a, from a Levite clan, right? So it's surprising. Oh, pick me. I, I can picture the person saying, obed do you even play the ark, a uh, harp, right? Why are you volunteering for this? And Obed-Edom said, I can learn as long as I can do it for God. And you can imagine all the other things that are being picked up. Who wants to do this? Who wants to do this? And we keep seeing Obed-Edom's name being popped up over and over again. And finally, look at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 4. You are to minister before the ark, to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, David saw that Obed-Edom was doing such a great job that David recognized him and gave him charge of it to do it daily while also being a gatekeeper. Saying, I also want you to do this because I can see how much you love being in God's presence. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what happens when we fully invite God's presence into our life we begin to realize that nothing else quite satisfies our soul. Nothing else quite replenishes our spirit. This is why we take up tasks as being gatekeeper. I'll do it. This is why in our church, with the various ministries that we have, and we feel like, man, I'm so tired. I can't do more stuff, and I can't do boring things, or I can't do other things that no one else wants to do whether it's volunteering to teach kids or our midweek youth or showing up on Sunday mornings to do intercessory prayer, whether it's leading life groups, whether it's buying snacks for the church, whether it's doing Zoom and helping us with the, uh, with the Zoom groups that we have and, and making this space better. We can always feel like, man, it's so boring, or man, it just saps me of energy. And Obed-Edom could have said that. Being a gay peeper, oh man, oh, learning how to play the harp, oh man. What, saying giving thanks every day and giving petition, a prayer petition in front of the ark every day, oh man. You know, he could have said this, but it's not. Obed-Edom saw something different because God's company, it influenced his formation. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to ask us, what kind of company are we keeping? What does our formation today tell us about the kind of company we've been keeping? I want to invite us to go into prayer. As we pray together, here's the first thing I want us to consider and to pray about together. What kind of influence have we been to others who are keeping our company? What words or actions are we displaying 
in terms of relationship with God? Are we showing this kind of like all men or this arm's length away from God, not really engaging? Are we promoting that kind of ethos? So just take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to convict us, to give us a chance to lay that down, to say, Lord, I want to keep your company. And secondly, I don't want to be bad company for others. Let's reflect on this and let's pray together. Secondly, I want to invite us to pray for courage. Courage to say yes when God begins to knock on our hearts, even when others aren't responding, even when the environment around us isn't ideal. Let's pray that we have the courage to say yes to allow God's presence to come into our life. And, and even when we feel like, I don't know if I can really trust you. I don't know if my heart is ready. Let's say, God, help me to just invite you in. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for being with us in this time. I thank you that you never stop engaging with us. Thank you, Father, that you offer your presence to us. In your presence, it changes, heals our mind, changes, heals our thoughts, changes, heals our future. Help us to keep engaging with you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.